When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about a victory for voting rights that seems to be coming in November when Florida votes to give voting rights back to felons. They make up almost 10% of the state's population. Sasha Abramsky has our report. Also, universal basic income government payments to help keep people out of poverty. Is that a better idea than a government jobs guarantee? Bryce Covert will explain. But first, some perspective on the Kavanaugh confirmation hearings. We can't possibly keep up with the daily and hourly news about Kavanaugh, especially this week. Instead, our task here is to take a step back from the breaking news and focus instead on the big picture. We turn once again to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation and author most recently of the book, Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse. John, welcome back. It's great to be with you, my friend. Of course, we learn something almost every day new about Kavanaugh's history of sexual assaults and other offenses as a young man. But for months now, you have been showing that there are many other reasons why Kavanaugh never should have been nominated in the first place and why this whole procedure is deeply, radically flawed. So let's talk about the problems with the Kavanaugh hearings that do not involve attempted rape. Well, I think we'll both agree that the allegations that have come forward are credible and need to be heard. Yes. And may well derail this nomination. But let us also hope that they force, at the very least, a reopening of the discussion about this nomination so we can finally begin to have what we have not had up to this point, and that is a credible confirmation hearing, because it is very important to understand that Chuck Grassley, the longtime senator from Iowa, and his willing co-conspirators on the Republican majority on the committee have gone out of their way in cooperation with Mitch McConnell and with political players in the White House and the broader right-wing judicial activist community to so warp and undermine this process that it would be completely unrealistic to say 
that Kavanaugh's nomination has been examined in a serious way. It has not. The hearings that they had, the sessions that they had a couple weeks ago, were held without massive amounts of core paperwork regarding Kavanaugh's long tenure as a Republican political hack, a political operative, and elements of his judicial tenure that still merit examination. Beyond that, when it was finally revealed to the release of at least some emails that he had unquestionably lied to the committee, Chuck Grassley and other Republicans in the majority on the committee refused to do what any reasonable players, no matter what their party, no matter what their ideology would do. And that is to reopen the hearing, call Kavanaugh back and say, look, there are credible charges from sitting U.S. senators and from former U.S. senators, from Patrick Leahy, Russ Feingold, and others, who say that you misled or, if they're blunter, lied to the committee. You need to address these issues immediately because we cannot possibly confirm someone to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court if they are guilty of perjury in their testimony to the United States Senate. So we have... In addition to Christine Blasey Ford reporting that Kavanaugh sexually assaulted her during high school, we have what's called the second woman, Deborah Ramirez, who told Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer of The New Yorker that early in her freshman year at Yale, this was a story that broke on, on Sunday evening, Kavanaugh and his friends at Yale got her drunk, and she remembers another male student shouting, down the hall, quote, Brett Kavanaugh just put his penis in Debbie's face, close quote. He denies that. Now we have Kavanaugh's high school yearbook where he has a dozen football teammates where he and they all refer to themselves as something called Renata Alumnius. This apparently refers to a classmate, Renata Schroeder, with whom they seem to be suggesting they all had sex. The New York Times found Renata Schroeder. She told them, quote, the insinuation is horrible, hurtful, and simply untrue. I pray their daughters are never treated this way, close quote. Kavanaugh's lawyer offered this explanation. Renata Alumnius means that he, quote, admired her very much, close quote. My question here is, Kavanaugh himself does not want an investigation into these charges, even though allegations of sexual misconduct always deserve to be taken seriously, we believe, because women are systematically silenced and their voices matter. So what does it mean that Kavanaugh himself doesn't want a thorough investigation and that his Republican supporters don't want any investigation? Well, this gets to the heart of the matter, doesn't it? And it's, it's the broader challenge with this process. They want you to think that they're doing due diligence. And yet at every turn, they reject the most basic premises of an inquiry into whether someone should sit on the Supreme Court. I don't think we have to dig into this much further, do we? Yeah, no, I don't think so. Well, of course, the Republicans being in the majority on the committee do have the power to force a vote on this and bring this to the floor of the Senate anytime they want to. Seems to me if they do that, and they may well do that 
this coming Friday, apparently. We don't know at this point. We're recording this on a Tuesday afternoon. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me if it does come to the Senate floor, if the Republicans just force the issue and refuse to hold the kind of hearings that we're talking about, seems to me Susan Collins becomes tremendously important. She has said uh, that if Kavanaugh is lying, that would be disqualifying. What you're getting to here, of course, is this core question, I think of, and I'm sorry to interrupt you, Anna, Please. but I, I believe the, the core, core question of, of what, what happens next if yeah. this committee you know, rushes this through. Now, I hold out some hope for the committee. Uh, there are at least two members of the committee, uh, Jeff Flake and Ben Sass, who have at least some history of objecting to how this, uh, frankly, this moment is playing out uh, politically with the Trump administration, with its allies in Congress. And so I would hope that if Grassley manipulates a, you know, frankly, a, a wholly illegitimate process here, um, that, that you might see members of the committee literally object, you know, as it goes along. And so I, I'm, I don't reject that. Now, if it goes to the full committee, or to the full Senate. Then you have several options here that are, are important. First and foremost, Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, who has said that she thinks there should be an FBI. She's at least suggested that an FBI inquiry would, would help to sort out a lot of the issues and has not, frankly, said as much as Collins about this, but is a, another member who potentially could be a no vote. Collins, of course, from Maine is a potential no vote. Then you have the the complexity of the Democrats, and that's an important thing. There's three or four Democrats who've been viewed as potential yes votes for uh, a nomination, folks who, at least some of them who voted for uh, Gorsuch when he was nominated. I think that what has played out over the last week or so, not merely with the allegations against Kavanaugh, which are important, but also with the response of Grassley and some of the Republicans on the committee, and frankly, uh, some of Kavanaugh's defenders beyond uh, the Capitol, I, I think that has had the effect of causing these potentially wavering Democrats to recognize they can't vote for this nomination. Then this nomination can be stopped. If all of the Democrats hold together in opposition to a nomination, and they can, have, they can offer many reasons for why they don't want it to go forward. But if they hold together, those 49, and then Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski come across to the, the, the side of, of opposition, this nomination can be halted. And to the very last minute of this process, you know, to that, to that last vote is cast on, on the floor, I think that, that opponents of this nomination have to be ardent and and committed, but also optimistic to to genuinely believe it's possible to stop it. Now, last thought, some of our friends who are not as optimistic as you and I are say, well, the next one Trump nominates will be even worse. What do you say to them? Well, watching Brett Kavanaugh over the last few days, including his Fox interview, I'm hard pressed to think you're going to get a whole lot worse. (laughs) Um, You know, look, we're talking about a Bush administration political hacker worked with Karl Rove 
to warp the judiciary, not merely to warp it to be conservative, but literally to politicize uh, judicial nomination fights in all sorts of ways. A guy who's then moved uh, onto the federal bench, uh, very controversially, we should acknowledge, through a process in which he lied to the Senate, not once, but repeatedly, uh, and was never held to account for that. And who says that if he gets power, we suggested that if he gets power, he wants to expand the effectively the immunity of the presidency, of an imperial presidency, from scrutiny and oversight. And then we get to everything that's been brought up. You tell me, John, you're a smarter man than I. <laughs> how, how much worse can you get? Well, and I would say one other thing. The next one will take time. I mean, in the past, it's taken 60 days for the FBI to complete a background check of a Supreme Court candidate. Lots of things can happen uh, during that period. And it's a whole even, new ball game. An and that's election. one reason. That's one reason why the Republicans are so anxious and determined to get Kavanaugh through, if not on Friday, then, you know, the beginning of next week. I agree with you. I think that they're they're desperate. Um, and I think their desperation is showing. They know full well. There are so many alternatives. If they really believed in Brett Kavanaugh, they really thought that this was, was cool and everything was good, they could give it the time. They could give it the FBI inquiry. They could call everybody back, have a real additional hearing, probably still finish it in a you know a week and a half, two weeks, right? But they don't want to do that. And so my sense is, that they're signaling their own desperation and those who oppose this nomination and frankly, who would like to see a return to some sort of, you know, sanity as regards to judicial nominations, because of course the root of all this is the Merrick Garland struggles and, and, and all the fights that came before ought to recognize in the desperation of the Republicans an opportunity to really turn a corner here. And ideally, ideally that, that corner would involve uh, a restoration, no matter who's in charge of the Senate, a restoration of, of the confirmation process as it's supposed to operate. And frankly, if, it, if it's run as it's supposed to operate, you're never going to get a guy like Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court again. And frankly, it won't happen this time if we're lucky. John Nichols, read him at The Nation magazine. Thank you, John. Always great to have you on the show. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate it greatly. Support for Start Making Sense comes from Audible. Introducing Audible Originals, a new member benefit. Audible members now get more. Two Audible Originals and one audiobook every month. Audible Originals are exclusive audio titles created by celebrated storytellers from worlds as diverse as theater, journalism, literature, and more. Every month, Audible members get one credit good for any audiobook they choose, plus two Audible Originals from a changing selection that they can't get anywhere else. They also get access to audio fitness and health workouts created exclusively for Audible. Audible has the largest selection of audiobooks on the planet, which lets you fill your fall with more stories like Horsemen of the Trumpocalypse by John Nichols. Audible offers listeners 30 days to try Audible free which includes their choice of any audiobook plus two Audible originals on us. It's the perfect way to discover what millions already have. Listening lets you get more books in your life because, with the free Audible app, you can enjoy them anytime, anywhere. At home, at the gym, while commuting, or doing chores. Plus, your books are yours to keep. 
With Audible, you can go back and re-listen anytime, even if you cancel your membership. Get your first audiobook free and choose two titles from a curated list of Audible originals when you try Audible for 30 days. So visit audible.com sense or text sense, which is S-E-N-S-E, to 500-500, which is 500-500. The fight against Donald Trump is a fight above all for voters and against vote suppression. And one of the key battles to expand voting rights and push back against vote suppression is going on right now in the key swing state of Florida. For many years, voting rights activists there have been campaigning to restore voting rights to felons. And now an initiative to do just that will appear on the ballot in Florida in November. For that story, we turn to Sasha Abramsky. He writes regularly for The Nation. He's the author of several books, including The American Way of Poverty, The House of 20,000 Books, and most recently, Jumping at Shadows, The Triumph of Fear and the End of the American Dream. Sasha, welcome back. John, thanks for having me on again. So how many people would get their right to vote back if Florida passes what they call Proposition 4 on November 6th? Well, it's an absolutely huge story because the thing about Florida and several other states in the South in particular is that they have a process that is essentially permanent disenfranchisement. So if you lose the right to vote because you've been convicted of a felony, the mechanism for getting re-enfranchised at the back end of your sentence is so cumbersome that almost nobody does it. For decades, you had relatively stable disenfranchisement numbers because you had relatively stable and, in the historical scheme of things, relatively low numbers of people going to prison, numbers of people getting felony convictions. What makes this an absolutely enormous number is the juxtaposition of permanent disenfranchisement with mass incarceration and with the wholesale conviction of drug users in particular in the 80s, 90s and early 2000s of felonies. So you have this accumulating problem where more and more and more people are picking up felonies and they're not getting re-enfranchised. So when they come out at the back end of their sentence, they remain disenfranchised. And the numbers are hard to get exactly because, first of all, Nobody compiles data of ex-felons and ex-prisoners who live in a given state. And second of all, Florida disenfranchises people regardless of where their felony conviction was. So you can live pretty much anywhere in the country. If you come into Florida after a felony conviction, you can't vote in Florida. All by way of saying that the numbers are very, very large, but they're estimates. But here's the estimate. The estimate is that about 1.8 million Floridians, which is about 10% of Floridians, have felony records. 1.4 million of those would be eligible for re-enfranchisement. The ones who aren't are people who are still in prison or on probation, they never went to prison in the first place, or on parole. And the other ones who aren't, and this was a compromise made by the authors of the amendment, the other ones who aren't are sexual offenders and people convicted of murder. So if you factor out those two categories of crime, you factor out those still in prison, those still on parole or probation, you're still left with 1.4 million people who, if this passes, will now become eligible to vote. Tell us a little about the campaign in Florida to restore voting rights to felon. Who's organizing it? How did it get started? What's the argument that they've been making? 
in terms of who started it, this is very much grassroots driven and it's actually organized and led by, the, the, they call themselves returning citizens, people who've either been in prison or been on probation and they've completed their sentences and they're trying to remake their lives, they're trying to reintegrate themselves into the society and they found that they cannot vote. And so primarily this is a grassroots-led campaign by people who are at the wrong end of disenfranchisement codes. Now that said, there are also criminal justice reform groups that have gotten involved in this because this, is, this has been an issue for years. Um, I wrote about it after the 2000 election when mass disenfranchisement in Florida was clearly one of the things that pushed George Bush over the edge in that hotly contested race for the presidency where it came down to a dead heat in Florida. So this has been a sort of holy grail of criminal justice reformers for decades. I think the reason it's acquiring traction now, partly there's this interesting coalition between progressives and conservatives that's emerged over the last 10 years or so around disenfranchisement. And so you have a lot of conservative groups, especially religious conservative groups, that are talking the language of second chance. They're talking the language of redemption. And so in Florida, there's this really interesting coalition. You've got the sort of more traditional criminal justice reform groups, but then you've also got the Christian coalition and various other groups who have come aboard and said, yes, we think it's only fair that voters get a second chance. And so I think one of the reasons it's been so successful is this coalition of groups has been going around the state, not just to traditionally liberal parts of the state, they've been going all over the state and they've been telling stories. They've been explaining the impact on individuals of disenfranchisement. They've been putting a human face to this massive number, 1.8 million people who cannot vote in this state. So how's it doing in, in the opinion polls? Is this going to pass? Mm-hmm. I know that in Florida, propositions like this require more than 50%. I think it's 60%. Can they get to 60%? It's 60%. On one level, that's an uphill climb. On another level, when you look at the opinion poll data, the numbers are very good. Across the state, it's polling well above 60% at this point. Wow. When you break it down, it's polling a majority support by men, majority support by women. It's polling a majority support amongst both Democrats and Republicans and also independents. It's polling a majority support amongst whites, blacks, and Latinos. So in every demographic group, it's polling well. Now, obviously, there's still six weeks to go until the election. There's going to be an awful lot of um, conversation about this. There's going to probably be an awful lot of media about this. But at this point, it's certainly got a good chance of passing. What about undecided voters at this point? Are they a significant factor? Usually they are six or seven weeks out. The polling suggests there are very few people who are undecided and very few people who haven't heard of the initiative. This is something that's gotten an awful lot of attention And an awful lot of people have heard about it and have made up their mind on it. So there actually isn't at this point a huge pool of undecided voters left. And how come the campaign to restore uh, voting rights to felons has been so apparently successful in Florida, given that vote suppression is so important to the Republican party and Florida has a Republican governor and has been a a very divided state politically? Yeah, I I think there are a few things going on. The first is that actually, even though federally we're sort of going into reverse on criminal justice with Jeff Sessions at the Justice Department and, you know, all kinds of bad things happening federally, at a state level, 
we're at a very interesting moment because more and more states are fundamentally rethinking their approach to criminal justice. And you see that in drug policy, you see it in harm reduction policy, you see it even in bail reform like we have now in California, that it's more and more politically palatable to talk about the impacts of mass incarceration. It's no longer a third rail to talk about criminal justice reform in a way that it was in the 80s, in a way it was in the 90s. You, you, you think of Bill Clinton and the you know, really awful lengths that Bill Clinton went to to avoid being seen as soft on crime, including embracing you know, very, very punitive federal sentencing guidelines, including embracing massive expenditures on new prisons, on expanding law enforcement apparatus, and so on. Um, but that's no longer the case. There's, there's a national conversation going on around the role of justice and the discriminatory impact of a large part of the justice system, which means there's space for a conversation where it wasn't space, you know, even a few years ago. In Florida, it's really interesting because you're absolutely right. The governor, Governor Scott, is absolutely awful on this issue. And he's gone out of his way to slow down reenfranchisement. He's gone out of his way to make it all but impossible for individuals who are petitioning for clemency to get that and to get reenfranchised. By contrast, if you look at the gubernatorial candidates, the Democratic candidate has come out in support of Amendment 4. But the more interesting one is the Republican candidate, DeSantis, has not come out against it. He hasn't oh. said he's in favor. But he's essentially sat this one out. Now, in the primaries, other Republican candidates did come out against Amendment 4. But DeSantis has been very, very careful not to inject himself into this debate. He said it's up to the citizens of Florida. Now, that doesn't mean that as we get nearer to the election, there won't be dirty tricks. It doesn't mean that as we get nearer, the Republican Party won't use racially inflammatory language because a disproportionate number of the disenfranchised are non-white. It doesn't mean any of that. But it does mean that there is an opening here because the Republican Party are on the defensive on this. They realize it doesn't look good in the current context or in any context to embrace disenfranchisement measures. And let me just conclude by saying a few words about just to remind our listeners how important Florida is in American politics. It's the fourth biggest state. That means it has the fourth largest number of electoral votes in picking the president. Trump carried Florida 49 to 48 percent. He had about 110,000 votes more than Hillary. Uh, you said there are 1.4 million people eligible to get the right to vote back if Proposition 4 passes. Almost all of them are non-white men. Well, of well course, we, have to, we have to be careful about that. The, the, the disenfranchisement numbers are so huge in Florida, and they basically go across demographics. So yes, there are more non-white men who are impacted by disenfranchisement, but there are certainly hundreds of thousands of white men and women who are also impacted. And one, one of the things the reenfranchisement campaign has been extremely good at talking about is how this is a nonpartisan or should be a nonpartisan issue, that it doesn't matter whether people will vote Democrat or will vote Republican or will vote something else entirely that this is a basic human rights issue, that you can't run a modern democracy if you exclude that many people permanently from the electoral process. Sasha Abramsky, he wrote about the campaign to restore voting rights to felons in Florida for The Nation. You can read him at thenation.com. Thank you, Sasha. Very welcome. Thanks again. 
it's time for something completely different. We don't have to let Trump set our agenda. We have our own goals and priorities to talk about, and one of them could be universal basic income. For that, we turn to Bryce Covert. She's an award-winning contributor at The Nation and a contributing op-ed writer at The New York Times. Her writing has also appeared in The Washington Post, The New Republic, New York Magazine, and Slate. She's appeared on ABC, CBS, MSNBC, and NPR. Bryce Covert, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me. Well, for people living in poverty, getting money from the government on a regular basis would certainly help make them less poor. But lots of people on the right say they would only spend that money on beer and cigarettes or worse. So it's a bad idea uh, to give poor people money. Uh, What do you say? Well, the research that a variety of different kinds of academics have done at this point just doesn't really support that point of view. I think it's pretty widespread, and in fact, it may not even be solely on the right that people think, you know, if I give some cash, say, to someone who's panhandling on the street, they're just likely to use it on something negative, and so in the end, I'm really hurting them, I'm not helping them. But when we look at studies that have been done of giving cash to people no strings attached. In both the developing world and in some developed countries as well, what researchers have found is basically they don't drink more, they don't spend more money on cigarettes, you know, they don't do sort of these things that we think of as quote-unquote bad. What they do instead is they invest in themselves, they invest in their families, they eat more, they uh, can access health care so they become healthier, they tend to get more education. Sometimes they're even able to use it to start a business or invest in something they were already doing and, you know, increase their income. So it has a variety of positive effects and doesn't seem to really have those negative effects that everyone has assumed for so long would come along with just handing money to people. The other thing it doesn't really seem to do that people sometimes worry about is induce them to just give up working. You know, there's this notion that it would be a moral hazard. People would get cash for nothing and decide, well, then I'm just going to not work anymore. And um, there have been some studies of the effect on the labor force and basically people continue working as before, or like I said, sometimes they'll even use it to get a business going or invest in what they were already doing. So there are numerous benefits, and it does not seem to have a lot of drawbacks. And the people who are proposing this as a federal government policy in the United States, how much money are we talking about spending? How much per month for how many people, and and what effects could that bring? Well, so that's where it starts to diverge a bit. It it really depends on who you're talking to. But I would say, generally speaking, most people who are talking about a universal basic income here in the U.S. tend to talk about somewhere around $1,000 a month for every citizen. Some people talk about giving it to every adult. Some people talk about giving it to adults and children. And some people talk about a truly universal basic income so that no matter who you are or what you make, you get the check from the government. Some people talk about something more just like a guaranteed income for a certain slice of the population. So, for example, um, Chris Hughes, who's a co-founder of Facebook, wrote a book about this topic, and he's not talking about a universal basic income. He talks about giving out just $500 a month to people of a certain income who meet certain requirements, which is pretty different. 
Although it would also be quite a divergence from what we do right now anyway and the federal government. So all of that is sort of under this big umbrella, but would obviously have first of all, very different costs for the government and then also very different impacts for the people who got it and then for, you know, society at large. Another one of the concerns of at least some of the people who advocate a universal basic income is that automation computers uh, are going to replace a lot of the lower-paying jobs in America and everywhere else, too, And we don't actually need people to do this work anymore. Driverless cars will replace Uber drivers. Uh, Computers will replace human labor and assembly lines. And therefore, in the future, we won't have the ordinary jobs that we have had in the recent past. And therefore, we're going to need to do something. And universal basic income is going to be required by the transformation of uh, work in America and the world. What do you say to that? Well, yeah, so that's what a lot of people who come to this issue come at it from. Um, you know, Chris Hughes is, is along those lines, Andy Stern, who used to run SEIU. I say that I think they're getting a little far ahead of themselves. The data isn't necessarily there that we are facing some sort of robot-fueled jobs apocalypse. A lot of these technologies are still pretty early stage. I mean, driverless cars certainly have made some significant improvements but are not ready to be rolled out en masse on the streets uh, and roads of America. We have problems today that we should be dealing with in our economy, and I think there are issues in our economy that a universal basic income could address. For me, the most important um, and significant one is poverty. We have a lot of people in this country who live in pretty desperate poverty, and giving them a regular infusion of cash could really alleviate that problem. It could also potentially do some other things for the more structural jobs-related issues we have, but the other problem I see with some of these arguments in favor of a universal basic income that relate to automation or robots is that what they're arguing is that by giving out a universal basic income, you're giving people a fallback when their job disappears. And I just don't see how a check for $1,000 every month would be able to replace someone's job. It's just not enough money to live off of, even if you're a single person. And then if you have children, you know, forget it. (laughs) So we're really not talking about a policy that could stand in for job loss or stand in for a job if someone wants to leave, you know, a a crappy situation or, or gets laid off. What we're talking about is money that could potentially supplement someone who doesn't earn enough at work or just for some reason is still living below the poverty line. So let's talk about some other solutions to the problem of poverty in America today. Many uh, progressives now advocate a federal job guarantee. How does that compare to the proposals for a UBI, universal basic income? A job guarantee is basically the government saying, we will offer you a job at any time if you need or want one. Um, So it's very different in terms of administration. It would take a lot more coordination, a lot more effort from the federal government because the government would basically come up with um, activities or tasks, services that it needs done that are for the public good. So, for example, building out public infrastructure, caring for the elderly, things like that. 
and then it would say, okay, if you're unemployed or if you just got laid off or if you are in some sort of low-wage job that's not treating you well or giving you enough pay and benefits, come down to the public job office. We will employ you in this necessary task. You'll learn some skills, and you will also, more importantly, earn a living wage and get benefits like health care and paid sick days. That really does stand in for a job. If someone is facing job loss for, from automation or if someone is frustrated with the terms of their employment because our jobs have gotten more erratic and pay has not kept up with productivity, well, then you can just leave that job and you have the actual option of walking away and going and getting public employment instead, which forces the private sector to keep up and compete with a good public job. That, I really do think, gives workers power in the way that I just don't think a $1,000 check each month can do the same. Of course, there's some objections to that. There's kind of a more utopian objection. A federal job guarantee assumes everybody should work, and critics of that idea say this is, this is really an obsolete part of the Protestant work ethic that holds that your value is determined by your work. It's part of the government telling people what to do with their lives. If everybody doesn't have to work, they could do something more satisfying and worthwhile and find something more meaningful to do with their lives. What do you think about that argument? Yeah, I think there's validity to that. You know, what a job guarantee can't do is question how much we tie a person's value to how much they work in this country. A universal basic income starts to get at that question because it gives you money for, as some supporters put it, just being alive. And in theory, it could potentially free up some of your time to do something that's not work, or at least not paid work, you know, caring for a loved one, making art, whatever it might be. Again, I would argue that a UBI is still not going to let you do that full time, but it starts to potentially erode this obsession we have with work in a way that a job guarantee can't. And UBI can also help value the unpaid work that, in particular, women shoulder disproportionately at home. It it serves as a powerful rejection of the notion that people who work without pay are not contributing to, you know, the economy. Right. It's it's similar to the movement wages for housework from yes. the 70s. You know, the idea that the work of raising children and keeping a home is somehow not worthy of pay. They were trying to question that. And if you're receiving a UBI and that money is going, you know, you're using that money to then be able to spend time doing those tasks, it therefore is giving a monetary value to those tasks. And again, that's something a job guarantee is not going to get at, you know, and a job guarantee risks the idea that anyone who doesn't work for whatever reason in a job guarantee world, who doesn't take up the option of a public sector job, that there's something even more wrong with them for some reason, you know, that there's more stigma for people who can't or won't for whatever reason work. So which do you favor, universal basic income or a federal job guarantee? Well, given that both of these policies are still in the realm of the theoretical for the most part, I will stay in that realm and say, you know, in an ideal world, I think we have both. We have a universal basic income 
to alleviate deep poverty and to make sure that people who live in one of the wealthiest countries in the planet have a, sub, a certain level of subsistence and can survive. And we also have a job guarantee to ensure that anyone who is willing and able to work can do so and can do so for decent pay and with good benefits that really value their contribution. I think the two can really work hand in hand. Uh, one more thing, universal basic income would help people pay for medical care, pay for their kids' education, pay the rent. But what if we had Medicare for all? What if we had free education? What if we recognized the right to housing? Wouldn't those things be better than paying for them through a UBI? Definitely. I think also, you know, even with a UBI and even with a jobs guarantee, you know, UBI is not going to be able to cover all of the costs of living in this country that many of them that are increasing. And there are, there's still going to be a need for programs that ensure everybody has access to a good education. Everybody has access to good health care and medical care. Everybody has a roof over their heads. Um, I don't think either of these policies really will ensure those on their own. So there's plenty of other policy ideas that would have to be taken into consideration. Bryce Covert wrote a terrific article for The Nation about proposals for a universal basic income and alternatives to it. Read it at thenation.com. Thank you, Bryce. Thank you so much. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation, hosted by the magazine's sports editor. This week, Dave talks about the last stand of the angry white man. Racism, feminism, Serena Williams, and hip-hop. That's this week on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.